you today. My name is Mike, uh, one of the pastors on the team. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. Uh, you will see that we are continuing in a series. We're marching our way toward Easter next Sunday. We started a couple of weeks ago talking about Jesus fulfilling his purpose. And we're, we're looking at some of these episodes from his life, right, uh, as, as he was marching toward cru the crucifixion and then the resurrection. And so if you missed that, if you, if you somehow uh, weren't here that day, please go and check out. Because it's this incredible reality that Jesus knew his purpose. He, he wasn't just aware. Of it. it wasn't like he got assigned this. This is something that he and the Father uh, agreed on, collaborated on before the foundations of the earth. And, and so it's just this amazing reality of Jesus fulfilling his purpose. Last week, we talked about Jesus embracing his victory. Uh, and we looked at the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into uh, the city of Jerusalem. That's traditionally known as Palm Sunday. That's the Sunday we are actually celebrating today. Yes, I did it out of order. And uh, I don't really have a, a reason. Uh, I just did. So uh, today we're talking about something that's a little less, we've been on the 30,000 foot level. Now we're going to uh, come right down to the ground. We've been talking about really public realities in Jesus' life. And now we're talking about kind of a private quiet dinner affair. We're, we're talking about this, this thing, you know, instead of public adoration, we're talking about what would be known as personal devotion. And I do think there's some incredible realities for us uh, to, to wrestle with. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 uh, in the, you know, verse one and following. Um, the notes are on your outline and then uh, hopefully they'll be on the screen as well. But before I jump into the text, I want you to know just a few things, just so we, we're kind of coming to this text with some, some of the same body of knowledge. This episode is referenced in Matthew, in Mark, and in the Gospel of John. So these, these writers, as they wrote about the life and ministry, the crucifixion and the resurrection, three out of the four included this episode. And so we have a lot of knowledge, and you can kind of read all three and, and uh, get a lot of knowledge about what's going on here. It happened during the week of the Passover. So that's what we're in right now, the week of the Passover leading up to the Passover. In the home of Simon the leper, most of your translations uh, refer to him as Simon the leper, and we'll talk about why. It happened surrounded by Jesus' disciples, as well as some others from the town of Bethany including Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And if those names sound familiar, um, it's because Jesus was friends with these three, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They were siblings. They lived in the town of Bethany. They were probably prominent members in that community. And it was well known that Jesus was friends with them. Jesus had been in their home several times. And some of you might be familiar with those episodes in, uh, specifically in the Gospel of John. But most notably, Lazarus had died from an illness and Jesus raised him to new life. And so, so there's that. And, and so it would have been very natural if Simon is hosting a party to invite Jesus as well as Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And the last thing you need to know is in this passage of scripture, the woman who is at the very center of what's going on is unnamed in Matthew and Mark, but John names her. This is Mary the sister of Lazarus. This is an act of devotion and adoration that Mary embraces. And so I just, I want you to know that going into it. So as we talk about it and unpack it, it's not a surprise. I think that's enough to go on. Let's jump into the text in verse one. 
It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. I find that passage just slightly ironic. And I'll tell you why. It's, you know, they're rubbing their hands together with their evil little laugh. They're twisting their little mustache. And they're saying, <laughs> we have to secretly capture and kill Jesus, but not while we're worshiping the Lord. Just slightly ironic, right? These two motives kind of colliding here. And it is interesting to me how shrewd and how devious they're being. They're saying, we, we have to do this thing, capture and kill, but let's do it secretly Let's do it privately. Let's do it at night, maybe when everyone else is sleeping, say at midnight. Let's do it away from other dwellings, let's say in a garden, right? Like they're, they're planning this thing so that the people won't get upset. There won't be a big to-do. There won't be a confrontation. There won't be a riot. Now, here is a general life purpose, right? This is something that's just generally good. I speak this over all of us in our families, and here it is. If you ever find yourself planning deviously like this, if you ever find yourself saying, I need to do it after the family's asleep. I need to do it when the boss isn't looking. Like, I don't know why I have that voice. Um, <laughs> if you find yourself like planning so that, you know, you, I want to do it secretly. I want to do it at night. I want to do it when no one else can be a part of it, when no one else can say no. I want to do it when my accountability partners don't know what's going. Like anytime that's going on, just stop. It's a, it's a good moment just to stop your planning right there, right? You'll be a better human. You'll be uh, just a better uh, Jesus follower. It's just, it's just really good for your own soul to just, if you ever find yourself planning those devious type things. Now, maybe there's an exception, right? You're planning a, a, a getaway for your spouse, and so you have to keep the emails private or something like that while you're booking the hotel. Like, that's different. That's not what I'm talking about. Can I get an amen? Like, go ahead and do that. I'm just talking about the devious, shrewd, you know people aren't going to like it, you know it's, it's off the books, you know it's, it's, it's in the gray or black area, so don't, don't go there, right? Like just in general, okay. Can I get, amen, thank you, yeah, amen. I, I appreciate some feedback, just so you know, and it's mostly because it, it prevents the napping that happens. So yeah, just feedback's good. Uh, uh, amen, he said. Hallelujah. All right. So, uh, so, so here's this woman, it says, and th this is Mary. And in the gospel of John is when we get this picture of Mary coming in. But the scripture says she, she has this alabaster jar filled with a very expensive perfume. And, and, and so most scholarship around this indicates that this would have been a family heirloom. This would have been something that would have been passed from maybe grandparents to parents, and now Mary has it. And, and the other interesting thing to me is that it was probably the most expensive thing in their entire estate. So, so just in one little beautiful alabaster jar, and it would have been sealed to keep the perfume fresh, and that's why she had to break the jar. So, so the entire thing is, is used in this episode. The jar is broken, not to be used again. The perfume is poured out, not to be used again. So, so there's all of that going on. 
And, and then, you know, what you need to see is that Jesus, he's reclining at the table. The other disciples are around and the other house guests. And, and this jar is broken over him and the oil pours down over him. And he received it probably a little differently than you or I would receive that. Now, every once in a while, Hebrew culture in the first century is so distant from where we are today in our mindset that we really do have to do just a moment's work of trying to get our minds there. But, but I just want to be honest with you. If I was at a dinner party, say at your house, and I'm sitting around the table and we're all having a good time eating a meal, and, and somebody comes up and, and pours vegetable oil over my head... I'm not going to be affirmed in that moment. And I don't know about you. It's not going to be like, oh, thank you, you know. Uh, I would I'd kind of be like, ah, my hair, you know, my, my face, my food, my shirt, you know. I, I, and maybe you're differently. Maybe you're bald. It's like, oh, that feels good, you know. I, I don't know. But, but you have to realize that, that Jesus receives this differently. In fact, the whole picture of oil in the scripture, whenever we read about oil in the scripture, it's either useful, powerful, or positive. Oil is always representing something. It's either useful, they're just using it, you know, everyday household use, or it's positive or powerful. And so we have to get our minds shifted over there. So let me give you a scriptural example of what's going on in the Hebrew mindset in this moment. This is Psalm 133, verse 2. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. So let's unpack that for a moment. The psalmist is saying how, how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in harmony. When there's unity among Jesus' followers, we could all agree. It's, just, it's so beautiful when brothers and sisters are, are getting along and loving and affirming one another in the Lord. It's just good. It's just pleasant. It's just beautiful. How good is it, we ask? Well, the psalmist says, listen, it is so good. Listen to this analogy. It is so good. It's like oil poured out over your head. And not just a little oil, like a dab or like anointing. It's like poured out and running down. Think about Aaron when he got anointed. It ran all the way down his beard and it ran down on his robe and down the back of his shirt, down his back. And it was kind of wiggly. And like, it's that good. And we're like, no, nah, I still don't get it. Still doesn't sound good. We'd, we'd come up with other words, right? If that happened to us, we would come up with other words than good and pleasant. Or if we wanted to describe good and pleasant, we'd come up with other words, other analogies. If I was trying to describe how good and pleasant something, I'd say, oh, it's so good. It was so pleasant. It was like an all-day all spa treatment at the, the town's greatest spa. Or I'd say, oh, it was so good and pleasant. It was like surfing the warm water waves in Kauai. Or, oh, it was so good. It was so pleasant. It was like that second honeymoon without the kids, you know. Like, like there's just all kinds of things that we would maybe rather use to talk about so good and so pleasant, but not in ancient Israel. This is the pinnacle. This is the, the, how, this is the greatest good. This is the greatest amount of how wonderful it is. It's, it's like this oil poured out 
over you. And, and so you have to think about it in that kind of a context. Otherwise, when you're reading through a passage like in Luke chapter 7, when the prostitute comes in and, and pours perfume over Jesus' feet, and she's crying, and she's wetting his feet with her tears, and then she takes her hair, and she cleans his feet with her hair. And, and if we don't understand what's going on, we'll, we'll miss how beautiful and how sacrificial that devotion is to Jesus. Or you think about ancient Israel and all of the times that the kings were anointed. You think about Samuel anointing David with oil, just like this, pouring out oil over him as a young boy and declaring and preparing the kingdom for David's kingship. And and you just recognize that that oil, it it always signifies something. There's always power. It's always positive in this biblical context. And, And so there's so much going on here. And you can just picture as Mary breaks the jar over Jesus' head that that it's just this pure act of gracious, loving devotion. And you can just imagine Jesus responding and receiving it with that same kind of love and that, that just that warm acceptance. And of course, there's no act of devotion or ministry that is so good that somebody else can't find something to complain about. And that's exactly what's happening here. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 4, some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume? You might want to circle the word waste. That's their viewpoint. It's a waste. Why waste such expensive perfume, they ask? It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor, so they scolded her harshly. Again, disciples, right? The disciples, friends of Jesus are gathered here. Now, in John's gospel, the person who complained was Judas. We, we see that clearly. And, and John actually gives us insight as to why Judas complained that this money wasn't given to the poor. It's because Judas was the uh, disciples' accountant. He was the one in charge of the, the money, keeping track of the money and where it went. And so Judas was saying, when he's saying, oh, it could have been given to the poor, he's thinking, poor old me. It could, I, I, that could have been money, a year's worth of money. That could have been put in the satchel. I mean, that would have been really enriching to me. And so he, his heart is hard in this. And, and, and so it's interesting that he gets in this place of, of criticism, and he calls it a waste. He says, what, what a waste this is, that, that honoring Jesus like this was a waste. I mean, it's a really good indication of where his heart is. And, of course, Jesus sees this in verse 6. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? Please underline that phrase. He says, this is, this is such a good thing. Why? Criticize her for doing such a good thing to me. You will always have the poor among you. And look at this. You can help them whenever you want to. Okay, there's a lot to unpack right here. The first is that it's always a slippery slope for us to start complaining about ministry expenses, especially when you're judging someone else's ministry. And it's easy to judge other people's ministry. Uh, and maybe you found yourself doing this, but, but it's easy to complain that other people aren't doing enough good things or they're not doing the right good things 
or if they're doing good things and the right good things, but they're not doing it in the way that you think they should be doing it, there's always ways that you can complain about how someone else is doing ministry. And what I'm trying to argue and what I think Jesus is showing here is that's always going to be a slippery slope for us to be on. Because, friends, ultimately, all of us stand accountable to Jesus. And if Jesus says, this is such a good thing, let's not say anything else. Does that make sense? So it's, it's always one of those deals where, and again, I, I get it. I, I understand that we want to use our analytical minds and we want to do ministry with the most effectiveness and, and the greatest sense of stewardship. And I am all for those things. I absolutely understand it. All I'm saying is that when you find yourself criticizing about someone else's ministry, that's more often an indication of a critical heart than it is an analytical mind. So we've just got to be careful. I'll give you an example. Story from my life. In 1998, I had just started work as a, a young pastor at Saddleback Church down in Southern California, and my boss, my pastor, was Pastor Rick Warren. Many of you might know Rick. Rick's written a couple of books, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life, and, uh, and, and Saddleback is a fairly well-known ministry, and it's quite large down there. And um, so I just started. I was a few months on the team, and on my way to work one day, I stopped off at a coffee shop, and I just want to get coffee and then head into work. And so... I stop at the coffee shop, I'm in line behind a couple of guys having a conversation, and one of the guys is very loudly, very obviously, he's complaining about Pastor Rick. And he's just running him down, and he's calling him certain things, like really specifically, he's saying he's like a, a Mercedes collector, that he's, a, he's a, you know, um, just a, a health and wealth guy, that it's, it's all about his fancy cars that he's driving, his Rolex watch, and, and his fancy suits and all this stuff. And he, he's just kind of just running him down as being just a real shallow prophet in a, the prosperity gospel movement kind of a thing. And, and so after a minute, I just, you know, I listened for a minute, and I thought, Lord, should I say anything? So then I, I just, excuse me. I, I, forgive me for overhearing. You know, the whole coffee shop could overhear, but forgive me for, for overhearing you. I, I said, listen, I, I just, I, I understand that you're making some statements about Pastor Rick Warren. So here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to just invite you to come check it out. And, and the reason I'd love to invite you to come, now I'm, I'm on the team there, so I'm going to have a biased view of that ministry and of Pastor Rick. So that's why I just want to invite you to come check it out, because I'm, I'm afraid that you have received some bad information about Rick. I said, why don't you come, and then you'll see that Pastor Rick, he drives a beat-up old Ford Explorer. He's not a Mercedes collector. And I said, you're not going to see him wearing fancy suits. He wears Hawaiian shirts. And he wears old boating loafers with no socks, and I find that gross, but he thinks they're stylish. <laughs> I said, you're, you're going to find a, just a really goofy human who loves Jesus with all his heart, and he's probably the most generous person I've ever met. And I said, now, I'm not going to guarantee that you're going to love it there. You might not like his preaching style. You might not like the music. Like, I'm not promising you're going to love it. But I just would love to have you come check it out because I think you're going to find that what you're complaining about, it actually doesn't match up with the person of Rick Warren. And rather stiffly, he said, no, thank you. I've got much better things to do with my time. And he turned his back and he was quiet. I was quiet. And we got our coffee and, and that was it. 
And you know, a lot of times that's the end of the story, and, and so you just have to remember the point. The point is that God's really not calling us to criticize other people's ministry, that we're going to stand before the Lord, and if he says, no, that's such a good thing, let's be content with that. But in this case, there was more to the story. I was on staff with Saddleback for just about over six years, about five years after this incident, I'm one of the preaching pastors on the team, and specifically, I'm teaching the Sunday night service, 6 p.m., and often I would stand and I would pray a blessing over all that had gathered uh, for that service, and, and I start to notice that I recognized one of the guys about halfway in the service, and, and he would always stand for the blessing with his young bride, and they would just receive words of God's grace and goodness over their life, and so one day after the service, I kind of walked by, and, and I said, you, you kind of look familiar to me. I knew him instantly, right? But I, you want it soft open. So <laughs> do we know each other? And he, he got a little sheepish. And he said, you know, you confronted me once at a coffee shop. And you invited me to come check it out. And I'm so glad I did. I've been coming ever since. And I hugged him. And I just told him, it's great to see him. And the end. That's the end of the story right there. I mean, there's no more. But, but I just, I want you to see that, that it, it's just one of those things where Jesus, he, it's very rare, I would say, that Jesus is calling us to be in charge of our brother's or sister's ministry to him. What Jesus is calling us to be is in charge of our ministry to him. And so what, what Jesus says to Judas and the disciples here, he says, he says, leave her alone. Why are you criticizing her for doing such a good thing to me? And then he, he, talk, he starts talking about the poor, and, and there's actually a bit of a rebuke in this. He says, basically, you can help the poor whenever you want to. And in fact, you're not. You, you could help them whenever you want to, but you're not. She's worshiping me, and you're not doing that either. You've gotten yourself into a place where you're criticizing, but you're actually not doing any ministry of any kind. And so we've just got to make sure that we get our hearts in a place where we're ready to do devotion and adoration to the Lord, where we're ready to be a part of what it is that, that Jesus is calling us to. You've probably heard, uh, seen this bumper sticker. It's kind of cool. It says, bark less, wag more, right? And what Jesus seems to be saying here is criticize less, but celebrate more, right? Just get in on the party. Get in on the activity that God is calling us to do in this world, okay? And then he, and then he goes on. He says, but you will not always have me. You'll have the poor, but you, but you won't have me, he says. Now, again, it's interesting. What's he doing? This is another prediction. It's another foreshadowing. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, whenever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. So friends, we're, we're preaching the good news today, so let's remember and discuss her deed. If you're filling in the blanks, the first one is this. What did she do? She prepared Jesus' body for burial. She prepared his body for burial. Lovingly, carefully, emotionally, thoughtfully, worshipfully, what Mary was doing was preparing his body for burial ahead of time. 
And, and some of you already know this, but just a quick recap. Some of the burial practices in the first century Israel, they would, they would take the deceased and they would, they, they would coat the, the body with oil and they would wrap the body with what they call burial clothes, linens, wrapped around the body and there would be spices that would be infused there as well. And then they would lay the body in the tomb. They would entomb the body and seal it. And chances are good that at least nine or ten months out of the year, they would do these things rather quickly after death. They, they would do them right away. This would be a, a task that would be, they would be done promptly because of the climate over there, the heat and the humidity, and the way that that would uh, make decomposition happen rather quickly, and, and it would become unpleasant rather quickly. So they would take care of these tasks. Very, very soon after death, they would entomb the body and seal the tomb, and then about a year later, they would unseal the tomb. They would come in and they would collect the bones and any of the burial wrappings that were left. And they would put them in a box that would be maybe this long, this wide, maybe about three feet long and a foot wide. They would put all the bones in there and then put a lid on that. And that was called second burial. And they would put that little box in maybe a corner of the tomb and the reason why they would do that is so that one tomb could be used for an entire family tree. It just is practical in terms of space, and, and, and that's how that would happen. For those of you who have already been to Israel, you know that you have actually seen these small boxes. If you've walked down uh, on the Mount of Olives, you have seen uh, those boxes where, the, where they take the bones and they place them in for second burial. But the, maybe that's more than you need to know. Just, you know, you're welcome. Um, but, the, but, but I just want you to see that there was a process for burial and that what Mary was doing is she was anointing Jesus' body for burial ahead of time. Now, Jesus is the one who says, you'll not always have me. Jesus is the one who says, she's anointing my body for burial ahead of time. You know, how much clearer could Jesus be to his disciples, this is going to happen? This is imminently in the future for me. You know, he's already said it multiple times. I'm going into Jerusalem. They're going to take me. They're going to betray me. They're going to kill me. They're, you know, like this is going to happen. And, and just preparing them. Why? Because when it happens, he doesn't want their world to come apart. He's trying to help them, right? He's graciously trying to guide them so that when these events happen that he has predicted, they will go, oh, Jesus told us about this. He told us that he was going to be raised on the third day, that, that, that we don't need to, to come unglued in, in this moment as this tragedy unfolds. And yet, of course, they do. They don't really get what's going on. But some scholars suggest that Mary seems to have some kind of an intuition about this. So let me unpack this a little bit. For those of you who know the story of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha, you know that in another episode in the Gospel of John, when Martha's running around trying to get the house ready for, for a meal, Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, drinking in everything that he's saying that her heart is, is turned in devotion to him and she prizes him and she, and she adores him and so she's just drinking in everything that he's teaching and so maybe because of the intensity with which she just consumed every word that he shared, maybe she did have insight, maybe he talked about this multiple times and so Mary, above others, was able to grasp, oh, I understand this is going to happen. 
that could very well be. It could also be that just the Holy Spirit worked in her life in a unique way and gave her this discernment. And so she had this idea of, you know, I want to anoint Jesus with this. Right? You can see that maybe some of these things are going on. I don't know exactly where you're going to land on this, but it's interesting that Jesus was quite clear what she was doing. She's anointing me for burial ahead of time. The next fill-in. She was thanking him for impacting her life. She was thanking him for impacting her life. And, and so you think about Mary. You think about her having Jesus as a guest in her home multiple times. She's sitting at his feet. She's listening to his teaching. She understands his preaching. She has invited Jesus to come when her brother was ill and then after her brother died. And so Jesus does finally arrive and he raises Lazarus to new life. And so she's seen his healing ministry up close. And, and, and she just sees us. Simon the leper who's in her hometown of Bethany. He's, he's known as Simon the leper because he had leprosy. But the indication is that Jesus is the one who came and who healed him, and so he keeps his title of Simon the leper as a form of testimony, so that everyone he meets, he can say, hi, I'm Simon the leper, and people go, oh, it's interesting that's your name, because you don't look like you have leprosy, and he would say, no, Jesus has healed me from my leprosy, and, and Mary would have known that, and so, so you could just imagine that Mary, her heart filled with gratitude for his teaching and his preaching and his healing ministry. Mary, who has this intuition of who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, that the purpose for his life is to give his life as a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And so you could just imagine her as she breaks that oil over his head and as she worships him in that moment of devotion, she's saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace for my life. Thank you for your forgiveness over my life. Thank you for healing my brother. Thank you for saving my life, my soul. Thank you for inviting me into purpose, letting me play a role in your ministry, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And again, a question I would have for us would be this, that is that the source of our worship for him? Are our hearts filled and overfilled with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. You know, I know sometimes it is, and I, I just, as a pastor, I know that there are moments and even hours where I'm in, intently grateful to Jesus. But I want to tell you, that's why it's so good to be a part of a fellowship that continues to remind us, oh, we have to be grateful. We need to be devoted. We, we need to allow our adoration to come from this place of deep gratitude for all that Jesus has accomplished for us. Because we forget. And it's easy to forget. So what she do? She thanked him for impacting her life. The next thing we see, she was extravagant towards Jesus. She was extravagant in her worship, in her exaltation of Jesus, and, and, you know, and magnificently so. She broke this beautiful alabaster jar, pouring this expensive perfume out. By the way, it was the essence of nard. I think that's a rather unfortunate name. It doesn't communicate how delicious it would have sounded. Some of your translations don't say nard. They say spike nard. I think that's even more unfortunate. Spike nard. It just, it's, it's not getting there, but it's, but it's delicious. And the last time I was in Israel, I almost brought some back. They use it as incense in the cathedrals over there, and it's, it's so beautiful. It's so rich. And you can imagine when she breaks the jar, the room instantly fills with this delicious aroma. And, and it's expensive. 
And so she's criticized for this extravagant use of this money. I, I just wonder, when was the last time that you were criticized for your extravagant worship of Jesus? When's the last time maybe your tax man or your accountant says, you're, you're just being way too generous to the Lord? Right? You're, you're, you're just, oh man, you gotta, you gotta rein it in. You're just being way too giving to the, like, this is a year's salary. And so don't go back to ancient Israel in this moment. Just think about your own life. Do the calculations. Your household. What is, what is a one year salary in your household? And imagine pouring that out to the Lord, just giving it as a gift of offering to the Lord. That's big time stuff, right? You might know my friend Eugene Cho. He's a pastor over at Quest Church in Seattle. You know he did this, that he felt called by God to give one year uh, salary to the Lord and to live without a salary for that year as just a, an act of generous worship toward the Lord. And I sat with him and I talked to him about this. I said, Eugene, you know, tell me, how did, how did you come to this decision and what was it like? And he said, oh, Mike, you know, he's kind of unpacking everything about it. He said, the one thing I regret, he says, before I announced that I was doing this to the church, I should have talked to my wife first. <laughs> so anyway, that's just food for thought if you're feeling, you know, moved here. But I, I just want you to see that you'll never waste anything on Jesus. You know, recently we've come through a series about don't waste it. You know, we, we do. We waste our time. We waste our money. We waste our strength. We waste all kinds of things, our influence. We, but friends, you'll never waste on Jesus. It's always a good return on investment. Right, this is one of those things that we can be a part of. And, 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 and so it's extravagant. We see and we're challenged by Mary's extravagance to the Lord. Let me tell you what the opposite of extravagance is. The opposite of extravagance is withholding. Right? The opposite of just pouring stuff out to the Lord is just holding it to yourself, withholding. You know, nah, not right now. Nah, I, I might need this later. Nah, I... I, I you know, you could even imagine Mary having this kind of conversation in her own mind. Is, is this the right time to use it on Jesus? Maybe I should wait till the next, next time he visits town. You know, if she thought like that, she would have missed her opportunity. We never would have read about it because Jesus didn't stroll through Bethany again. So you just kind of think of the opposite of extravagance is withholding. My buddy Lee was telling me a story that his grandparents lived in Perth, Australia, and if you know anything about the climate of Perth, Australia, it gets hot in Perth. It gets hot like bake a loaf of bread on the sidewalk hot in Perth. Like were you born on the surface of the sun kind of hot in Perth. And so his grandparents, they bought a, an air conditioning unit for their home. But it was never hot enough in Perth for them to turn it on. See, they had this extravagance, they, they had this, but instead, they, they never allowed themselves to enjoy the blessing that it would provide. It's a little bit like somebody who buys a, a beautiful leather couch, but never takes the plastic covering off. <laughs> and some of us were like that to the Lord. Right? Some of us are, are just a bit withholding to the Lord. Or maybe you're like this, you're like, well, it's fine to worship Jesus, but let's be reasonable. I mean, yeah, let's anoint him with oil, but not the expensive stuff. Let's just, I got some Wesson right here, you know. I got some Crisco. I mean, that should be. Yeah, yeah let's, let's, I love Jesus, but come on, let's not get radical about it. 
And so Mary challenges us to be extravagant in our faith, to be extravagant in our devotion, extravagant for Jesus, and really to seize the moment, seize the day, the opportunities that he provides for us to worship him. Next thing, we see that she did not have an agenda. She did not have an agenda. She was not angling for anything. By pouring oil on him, she was not thinking, what can I get out of this? What jewels am I going to receive in heaven? Jesus, can I do this and then sit at your right hand? Can I start to call the shots in this situation or in that situation? No, no, her heart was so pure and so raw and so intentional. There was no sense at all of what Mary would receive from this act. Mary had already received from Jesus. And now she was just pouring out her devotion to him. And again, it's a, it's a challenge for us, right? That when we come to the Lord, yeah, when we pray, oftentimes we ask for things from the Lord. And I understand that. But think about if that's the only part of our relationship with the Lord, the only time we talk to him is if we need something from him. And think about people in your life. If the only time people talk to you is when they need stuff from you, how good of a friend are they to you? You tend to avoid those kinds of people. And I'm not saying that Jesus is avoiding you. I'm not speaking on behalf of Jesus. I'm just saying I I want my life to not just be reckoned, my life with the Lord, not to just be reckoned by what I need from him, what I want from him. I want to just love him because I've already received so much. That's the challenge. She, she didn't have an agenda. Let's, let's worship the Lord without an agenda. And the, the last fill in here, she was remembered and honored for her act of worship. She's remembered and honored. And even here now, 2,000 years later, we're remembering her. We're honoring her. Yes, this is extravagant, Jesus says. But yes, it's appropriate. And what's beautiful, I think, Overlake, is that in this context, it seems like there's a little bit of a tension between devotion to Jesus or serving the poor. But I want to tell you at Overlake, there's really not that distinction. That our love, our worship of Jesus is is kind of tied right in with how we try to serve and care for the poor. That when we give to the mission of God at Overlake, already we're participating in the ministry to subsistence farmers in Kenya or to the street kids in Katale, to ministries in the township of Cape Town or liberating those being trafficked in Pattaya, Thailand. We're, We're a part of the church movement in the slums of India, and the list goes on and on and on, all while we give because of our hearts out of devotion to Jesus. You know, you and I, we are part of a church that sends, and so we've got missions happening all over the world that, uh, that is, it's just a, a part of a sending movement, and we're not afraid to get our hands dirty in ministry to the poor as an act of devotion to Jesus himself. And as I conclude our time together today, friends, I, I, I do just want to tell you that we have a unique opportunity, just like Mary did this week, that Mary sensed that the time was right, that whatever with the Holy Spirit or discernment or just her listening of Jesus, but she knew this was her chance to worship Jesus extravagantly. Well, you and I, we, we are right here one week away from Resurrection Sunday. This is the week where we walk from here into Good Friday. We reflect on the crucifixion. We reflect on what Jesus has done for us, what he's accomplished for us. On Sunday, we get together. We celebrate the resurrection, all the victory that's ours now because of Jesus. And so it's a unique opportunity that we have to prepare our hearts for Easter, to worship intently this week. And so the last fill-in is a fill-in for you. 
There's no answer for this. It's just what you and I get. I'm going to prepare for Easter by, and then, and then we get to fill in the blank. And, and I don't know what it looks like for you. Maybe for some of you, it's you want to read through the passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which talk about his crucifixion, which talk about his resurrection. And as you do that, you, you, you want to be thankful. You want to thank Jesus for what that means for you. Maybe for some of you, what you want to do is you want to begin to set your sights on Good Friday, and you want to think about how as a family, maybe you can participate in Good Friday with your family, some of the conversations going into that service or coming out of that service. Maybe for some of you, you want right now to think of that friend or that coworker that you'd like to bring with you to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus next Sunday morning. But maybe, and I hope this is for all of us, maybe we just begin to pray that God would make our heart like the heart of Mary. That God would make our heart like the heart of Mary, that that we would be willing to worship extravagantly. That we'd be willing to, in front of other people, be devoted to Jesus. That we'd not be ashamed to show our adoration for him. You know, Jesus says, that is such a good thing that she did to me. And so I would just encourage you, pray that Jesus would give you the heart of Mary. And friends, as we worship, as we devote our lives to him, may he receive it like a precious jar of perfume broken, poured out over his life. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful We are so grateful, and and even in our gratitude, we ask that you would make us more grateful. Help us to understand just a little bit more this week what it was that you have come to accomplish, the incredible magnitude of your victory that you invite us into. Please allow us to see even more fully the depth of your love for each one of us, the amount of your grace which covers us, which carries us, which buoys us up and propels us forward. Lord Jesus, we come to you even knowing the amount of trial that we face, the temptation that we face, the difficulty that we might find ourselves in. And and so Jesus, please, I, I know you see these things, these hard things in our lives. We're thankful for that. Right now what we ask is that you would allow us to worship you, that we would be able to break something beautiful and honoring to you and pour it out over your life because of our gratitude for how you've impacted us. We love you, Jesus. We ask that you would help prepare our hearts this week for celebrating your resurrection. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Mm